0: Have you ever felt like a nobody? I have. Not just in high school. But I was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, working with Christ Church of the Valley, my buddy Don Wilson. We uh, started a church in a movie theater there in Phoenix. It went from 300 in the movie theater to various other places. When I left, it was running 1,000. I go to Hesperia, California. Anybody know where that is? You people are the rarity. Nobody. I mean, people in Southern Cal and Orange County and Riverside County have no clue where Hesperia is. So I'd go to preacher's meetings, and uh, we'd have a conversation. Well, where are you at? And I said, Hesperia. Where's that? I said, well, do you know Interstate 15? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that In-N-Out burger on the way to, to Vegas? <laughs> and these preachers said yes. <laughs> I said, well, that's where I'm living. That's where I'm ministering. Well, why are you there? And the question had the tone of, what in the world are you doing there? Why aren't you in a real community where you can grow a church How do you answer that? Here's how I answered it. There are people there who need to know Jesus. But their question made you feel a little bit like a nobody. I went there and started feeling a little bit like a nobody The ministry and the philosophy of ministry that is still active and working powerfully in Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix was the same one, because I helped develop it, that I was using then in Hesperia. Well, this little church was 170 people. They were on eight acres. They had 8,000 square feet under roof, and uh, they were a discouraged bunch. They had four factions that were vying for power. And I show up, and 170 in the first year, we start averaging 239. Okay. That's great. That's good. The next year, we were averaging 222. The next year, we were averaging 210. Finished the year. And I'm wondering, what's going on? I know I'm doing the right stuff. And I'm doing it in the right way. And so finally I couldn't figure out an answer and and in prayer I just simply said to God, God, if you want me to be a preacher in a church of 200, so be it. And I'll serve you faithfully. And the next year the graph started this way. At the conclusion of that ministry, after 21 years there, we had uh, 14 acres. We had 26,000 square feet under roof. The church was, uh, t- offerings were way up. Our attendance peaked at 600. And God took that opportunity to say to me, Yeah, you're a nobody. but you are somebody that I will work through to accomplish what needs to be done here. Sometimes we get caught up with the uh, values of the world as opposed to the values of God's kingdom. And the pressure that comes from outside begins to push us into a mold that we need not be. Israel succumbed to that because here they are, they enter into the promised land and they are what? They are ruled by a series of judges. The whole book of Judges is this repetitive uh, cycle that they're in. They're faithful, they're unfaithful, they're oppressed, God raises up a judge, He frees the people, they're in prosperity, everything's going great, they're faithful, they become unfaithful, God raises up a judge, And notice each one of those people that God raised up were really misfits. All to make the point to Israel I am the one who is leading you, but I'm leading you through these people. But Israel decides we want to be like all the other nations, we want to be like all the other churches, and we want a king. And so God says, okay, find a king. And they found one, Saul. First Samuel 9 describes him, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all the others. But you know there was a problem with Saul, and the problem was his head and his heart did not jive with God. Oh, he looked great, and he would be a great king. He had all the outward appearances, he had the capacity to lead. But he was, uh, had a little major problem. He was unwilling to repent of his sins. Now, he committed sins just like David did. The difference is David was repentant. The difference with Saul was that he was not. And so God finally said, you know, I'm done. I'm fed up with this. And he removes Saul and says he will no longer be the effective king. Look at 1 Samuel 16, and here we see the story of a nobody who becomes a somebody. This is the selection of David as king. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel says, aware of the political situation, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. But he goes. He's faithful. The Lord said, take the heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? They know that this is a powerful man, a man of God. They're a little skittish and afraid. Samuel says, yes, I come in peace. I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Setting the stage. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliabib and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. This is the oldest son of Jesse. Now there, that was the system. And the system was that the oldest son inherited everything. The oldest son became the leader of the family, the patriarch. And Samuel says, yeah, this, this guy looks like the right one. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Then he had Shemaha pass by. And Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest. Jesse answered. "Uh, he's, He's out tending the sheep. Samuel says, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now notice how you might feel if you were David. You weren't even called. It was known to Jesse that one of his sons would be selected as king. His own father overlooked him. He was the youngest. He was a nobody. And Samuel said, send it for him. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and a anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Have you noticed how God uses many times the opposite of what we think to be most effective in the kingdom? The culture was that the oldest. What happened when Israel is in Egypt? Which the oldest son is he the one that became dominant or was it the, one of the younger ones, if not the youngest, Joseph? Notice how God moves against our common thought. I was leading the evangelism program at Christ Church of the Valley and uh, one, one fella came and he wanted to be trained and we were doing a peace treaty and doing all this evangelism training and my boss says to me, why is he in here? I said, he wants to be. He will never reach anybody. Let's move him to another ministry. I said, no, let's give him a chance. He was an odd duck. Best way I can explain it. I'm not talking about Duck Dynasty, but he was an odd duck. Some of his social skills were a little tweaked and a little off. We finished the training, started assigning some calls, through visitors. And this odd ball, this odd duck brought somebody to the baptistry. Well, wow, that was, I guess it was worthwhile to spend the time and train him. He got got to share the gospel and lead somebody to Christ. That's awesome. Two weeks later, he did it again. And a couple weeks later, he did it again. And I think there were 40 to 50 people who came to Christ because of this oddball, odd duck who was simply able to be faithful to the call that God has put upon us all. We need to remove sometimes our thinking and allow God to do some thinking for us. Okay. Okay. I digressed a little bit. Didn't I, Dean? And notice how it is significant that Jesse did not even have that youngest son. You'd feel like a nobody as well. But there's another interesting factor in this. Here is David chosen by God, and as you look at 16, 12, and 13, he's chosen by God. God takes a nobody, makes him somebody. He looks upon the heart, not the outward appearances. He's chosen by God, And what does he do after he's been chosen? He doesn't flaunt it. He just goes about his business. Even though he'd been forgotten. He goes about his business and back to the sheep. Now 2 Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking for the person, for the people, for the congregation that is fully committed to him. And what that says to me is God is looking for you. He's looking for you to be that fully committed individual that says, whatever you want, Lord, that's where I'll go, and that's what I'll do, and that's what I'll be. Has God ever moved you? He moved me. And the process was not pleasant. 21 years in one congregation. And I hope none of you know the kind of scenario that I'm going to describe. A couple staff, a couple elders, they decide they want some things different without taking it to a congregation. And they say, Shear, you're done. There's the door. 21 years. There's the door. I met with a gentleman to kind of counsel through that process in January. And in the process, he said, I was in prayer last night, and I need to tell you something. I said, okay. Okay. He said, God told me to tell you. To tell you, thank you for not dividing my church. God told me to tell you, I know your pain. And God told me to tell you, I'm not done with you yet. I thought I was done. I never sent an email, I never sent a, made a phone call, I never sent out a resume, no letters, nothing. And within six months, I'm at my first staff meeting with the Solomon Foundation. I had no idea what God was going to do with me, but God moved me and moved me into this ministry with Solomon. and I'm having some of my most productive years in ministry. What does it take? It takes being willing to be fully committed to Him and allow God to look for you and to place you in an area and a realm in ministry that you will flourish in. Now David had some qualities that God saw. There are four qualities that he found in David. Number one was a strong spiritual life. 1 Samuel 13, 14, But your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. These are the words to Saul. You're done as king. And God has sent out, sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is David's strength. This is the strength of the odd ball, the odd duck I was telling you about. Fully committed. This can be your greatest strength in your family, with your friends, within your church. A man, a person after God's own heart. What does that mean? That means a strong commitment to God no matter what. I will trust Him no matter what. I won't do it my own way as Saul did. I will listen and I will wait and God will lead me. We see in Psalms 8 the powerful spiritual life and expression of David. We see it throughout the Psalms. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've set in place... What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over your works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the world and birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swims in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He had a passion for God, a strong spiritual life. But he also had humility. He knew who he was. But because of that strong spiritual life, he knew whose he was. And so when I went through my time in the desert, so to speak, I still knew who I was and I knew whose I was. And sometimes preachers get it all wrapped up and think my role as a preacher is who I am as a person. And when that gets yanked away from them, they move into a fetal position and they don't know how to function. But somewhere along the line, I determined I was Gary Sheer, who happened to be a preacher, and so when that was taken away, I was still Gary Sheer, who loved the Lord God. Humility, knowing who you are and whose you are. He chose David his servant, and he took him from the sheep pen, Psalm seventy eight tells us. But his strength was his humility. He knew he was God's and God's alone. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes disgrace. With humility comes wisdom. Knowing who you are and knowing whose you are produces wisdom. Integrity of the upright guides them. And David simply goes back to the sheep after Samuel leaves, waiting for God to speak to him and tell him and lead him when he then is to lead Israel. Number three is a servant's heart. When you have a servant's heart, you're humble. Notice how each of these progress. Strong spiritual life develops the humility, which develops a servant heart. When you have a servant's heart, you're humble. You do as you're told. You don't rebel. You respect those in charge. You serve faithfully and quietly. And every one of us is called to be a servant, a servant of Jesus, a servant of the church, a servant of the Word, a servant of God which means He leads us. And we open our ears and we open our eyes and our senses and our heart to be able to be led by God and allow Him to be the leader. And that can be a very satisfying role. To not be in charge of His church, but allow Him to lead us as the church. A servant's heart, Matthew 20, 26. Not with you instead. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And notice, a servant doesn't care who gets the glory. We want God to get the glory, to God be the glory. We want Jesus Christ to be the one who receives the glory. His Spirit, His Word, You see, as a servant, I have one great goal, and that is to make my master, the Lord Jesus, look better and to make his mission more successful. And I don't want Jesus to fail. And I don't care who gets the glory. I want Christ to be lifted up and honored and receive the glory. And as a servant, I just want to get the job done. The fourth characteristic that we see in David was his integrity. That Hebrew word of integrity means this, complete, whole, and innocent, having a simplicity of life. David was a man of integrity. He was whole. He was complete. A man after God's own heart. Life can bruise you and beat you. But as a person of character, as a person who is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can move through that with integrity, with wholeness. And keep your head up because you're a servant of Jesus Christ. And you know that no matter what comes your way, you serve Jesus who will care for you now and through eternity. There's nothing I can't face because I walk with my Lord Jesus Christ. Integrity. Proverbs 10, 9. The man of integrity walks securely. We can walk securely through this life. There's a lot of stuff we don't like, but we can get through it. Why? Because we walk with God and we're a part of His church. Righteousness guards the man of integrity. Psalm 78 describes David. David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. Sometimes we worry about our image. There's no need to worry about your image. The thing we need to worry about is, are we a person of good character? Do we possess integrity? And if we possess character and integrity, the image that we think we want, if we decide we're not interested in it, it's going to come. Because God uses people of character, people with integrity. Now some of the paths to these four characteristics can be uh, a little difficult. One of these paths is solitude. David was alone with God as he was with those sheep. He spent a lot of time alone with God. He spent time by himself figuring things out because our solitude has a way of helping us address the issues. All of a sudden, my life for about four months was quiet. My phone didn't ring. I wasn't on call 24-7. There was a quietness where I spent time getting acquainted again with my God. And my wife made the weirdest comment to me. And she prefaced it by a country song. She twisted it a little bit. The line in the song goes, You ain't much fun since you quit drinking. And she reversed it and said, You're a lot more fun since you quit preaching. And as a nurse practitioner, she said to me, you're healthier emotionally, mentally, and physically, and spiritually. As I had four months of solitude. And it built character. It addressed issues. David, secondly, grew up in obscurity. This is another way that he trains his best personnel and his most effective kingdom workers. He grew up in obscurity. Men and women of God, servant leaders in the making, are first unknown, unseen, unappreciated, and unapplauded. And in the relentless demands of obscurity, character is built. Because I'm not doing it to be seen. I'm doing it because I love my Lord God. I'm doing it because I'm a servant. And it builds character. And as strange as this may seem, this next comment, it's true. Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. They know from whence they came. And they know that the applause doesn't matter. And what matters is serving my Lord and God. A third training ground for these four characteristics is monotony. Being faithful in the menial, insignificant, routine, regular, unexciting, uneventful daily tasks of life and ministry. The church I grew up in had a little lady. She was a little old lady when I was a kid. Forty years, she was in the lobby, foyer, narthex, whatever you call it, and would greet people who came in. She was there every Sunday. And if you tried to take her place, you learned the wrath of a little old lady. (laughs) You didn't take her place. You could greet behind her, but not in front of her. she was humble she knew her place she knew her gift and she blessed hundreds of people with that ministry a training ground where you keep doing the same things and you don't worry about the applause and the fourth training ground is reality the reality of being responsible when nobody's looking you see, being alone with God doesn't mean you sit in some closet and think about infinity. It means you get alone and discover how to be more responsible and diligent in the areas of your life, whether it means fighting lions or bears or simply following direction that comes from spiritual leadership. It's in these little things and the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable for big things. Within our group of Christian churches, in the 1920s, there were three major dominant churches. I mean, they were well-known. First Christian, Canton, Ohio. Central Christian in Phoenix. P.H. Welshmer led the first in Canton. P.Y. Pendleton led the church in Phoenix. And then a guy named George Tobman, who came out of nowhere into Long Beach First Christian Church. And Long Beach in the 20s was not the megalopolis that it is today. All three of those churches were well over a thousand in attendance in the 1920s. It was unheard of. All kinds of major denominations would come and ask their preachers, How do we do ministry? How did George Tobman get there? He served a little church in a farm community in Illinois, a church of about 50 people. Now, it would be easy to just kind of slide in a little church like that. But he wouldn't do it. He studied hard. He crafted his sermons. He spent time and energy to develop them and mastered his craft of preaching God's holy word. And then for some reason he was called from that little bitty church to Long Beach and built a church of a 1,000 because where he was unknown, he didn't scrimp at all. He gave it 110%. And then he was ready for the next stage and the next step. We all feel like we're not anybody. We feel like we're not somebody, but a nobody. No one knows us on the world scene. No one knows us on the national scene. Nobody knows us at the state level or at the county level maybe even within the city or a neighborhood or even within the church. And we get kind of down about that and we think we have nothing to offer. We think we've got too many flaws to lead or to be somebody. But who's your audience? Do you want the audience of the world Do you want the audience of a nation or a state or a county or a city? How about the audience of one? God himself. That's the one I want to be known by. He is the one. He is the one that I want to be the master and leader of my life. He is the one I want to serve. And so world acclaim is nothing and it's fleeting. And it's really not as great as you might think. My friend and buddy Don Wilson leads a church of anywhere from twenty five to thirty thousand on a Sunday morning in Phoenix, Arizona. We used to go to lunch. We'd go down to Burger King. For some reason, he likes fast food, fast food burgers. Yeah. So a couple years ago, we'd go to lunch. A rarity for him. We go to lunch. We're sitting at a Five Guys. And as we sit down and we make, place our order, somebody comes over and says, Oh, Pastor Don, I sure loved your sermon. I, I know Don well. He was nervous. Our food comes. Somebody else speaks to him. We're halfway through our food. Somebody else speaks to him. We're finishing up. Somebody else speaks to him. We put our trash in the container. Somebody else speaks to him. We go out the door. We're stopped twice in the parking lot. And as we got in the car, he said, I can hardly stand this. I have no idea who those people are. When we worked together, he was able to know them all. Audience of one, God always knows me, and I always know him. As great as as David was, David also had his flaws. You have yours, I have mine. And when your flaws get the best of you, If you've developed that strong spiritual life, that humility, that servant's heart, and you possess integrity, those flaws will crop up and they'll bite you and sin enters and you are strong enough to go and repent and be restored and get back in the saddle, so to speak, and serve your Lord and God. And I do the same. And so whether we serve In obscurity, we are all called to live for the audience of one, God himself. Whether or not anyone knows what we do, it does not matter. To be somebody in this world is worthless compared to being somebody in God's eyes. And every one of you are somebody in God's eyes. And he may be the only person who sees that we have become a person after God's own heart. David calls us, don't worry about being a nobody. Worry about being a somebody in God's eyes and develop those characteristics and serve Him no matter what. The words of Paul after he concluded. His statement about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that we have in His resurrection says, Be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For your labor in the Lord, no matter what it is, your labor in the Lord is never in vain. God bless you. Our Father, we are thankful for this, your church. We are thankful for her leadership, the impact on this community. Father, continue to protect, guide, direct, and lead this, your church, to reach one more for Jesus, and one more, and one more, and one more. Bless us, Father, we want to serve you, and you alone. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.